0: It is the 3rd of September, and we have more ground to cover um, than, uh, than I even know how to jump into this morning successfully. So I'm just going to, th- this is going to be one of those leaps into the pool that looks unrehearsed and ill-prepared. It's that cannonball. It's the person who does the cannonball when everybody else is doing those really beautiful well-planned, choreographed practice dives. All right. So let me just just admit that in advance. So we're entering into Labor Day weekend. I would love to say we're just going to focus in this time on a three-day weekend um, or a -a three-and-a-half-day weekend for some people who are taking off at noon today or even earlier. Um, But on this Labor Day weekend, we are dealing with crisis issues around the globe and here at home and so we're also gearing up for the start of school, and we are looking at the 20th anniversary of September the 11th next week. So there's just a lot going on. Um, let us certainly be turning our prayerful attention, and for those who are in proximity, your your actual physical attention to the needs of those in the northeastern parts of the United States ravaged by Hurricane Ida. We don't often talk about hurricanes ravaging the northeastern part of the United States. But the flash floods, particularly in New York City, parts of New Jersey and in Philadelphia, um, were deadly. And my guess is that the death toll is going to rise as more and more of those waters recede from places where water is just frankly not supposed to be. Uh, Grief this weekend, cleanup this weekend in other parts of the country as well. Following Hurricane Ida, Um, And following floods prior to that, Middle Tennessee uh, is among those. Also, those facing the total devastation of the fires in the northwestern part of the United States. Add to all of that the ongoing uh, grief related to Afghanistan and the diligence of uh, private citizens and former members of the military working very diligently day and night to find overland routes out of the country for those uh, green card and SIV holders, uh, their special immigrant visa holders in Afghanistan who served alongside us for 20 years, built schools with us, built hospitals with us, built roads with us, built relationships with us, hoping that we were building a future with them. Um, And now that future filled with hope is in question. So we're gonna address all of these concerns and issues today in the program. Uh, Lieutenant General John Bradley is going to be with us at the end of the second hour. But leading off this morning, I want to talk about the return to school because, you know, most of the country is already back in school. The rest of the country starts up next week following Labor Day. Education is a critical and a primary responsibility of parents. And we've seen parental engagement rise dramatically during COVID. Parents who didn't know exactly who was teaching their kids nor what they were being taught in the classroom got an education themselves during online learning. Uh, We learned about CRT, and we learned how to, well, frankly, stand up against that in our school systems. Um, we learned that there's this push pull related to how American history is taught and every other subject taught through a particular lens. Um, all along, there's been a rising tide and ever shifting sands related to how sex is taught about and what is taught about sex and how our kids are being instructed. In relationship to personal identity, identity, autonomy, sexual orientation, marriage, intercourse, conception, abortion, on and on and on and on and on. We we found out that as parents, many of us were being kept in the dark about what was going on in our schools related to the LGBTQ agenda. Parents are waking up. Parents are waking up to the reality that kids are often taught in schools things that we would not teach them ourselves, nor would we prefer that they learn if we were ever fully informed about what was going on. So, um. I'm just going to highlight one quick story this morning out of California, and it's a story that I wish had never happened but does not actually come as a huge surprise. There's one classroom teacher, Karen Pitson. She removed the American flag from her classroom sometime during COVID lockdown. She doesn't remember where she put it. She didn't bother to remember. She did find a flag to hang when they went back to in-person learning in the Newport-Mesa Unified School District in Orange County, and she um, she put that flag up in her room And although she told her students that they don't have to to stand for the pledge, and they certainly don't have to pledge allegiance to the flag when the Pledge of Allegiance comes with the announcements during third period over the loudspeaker. So she says, but I do have some students who choose to stand and not say the words, and that's totally fine, except for the fact that my room does not have a flag. Saying again that she can't remember where she packed it away. She didn't bother to find it. Um, She says, but I do have one pupil who asked what they should do during the Pledge of Allegiance, and I told this kid, we have a flag in the class. You can pledge your allegiance to it. He looked around. I pointed to the flag, or he pointed to the flag hanging in the classroom. The teacher is laughing. Guess what the flag is? Gay pride. She has been removed from the classroom, but this is surely not the end of this story, and it's surely not the only place in the country where this is happening. Teachers mocking the American flag and hanging in its stead um, uh, the the rainbow flag of the LGBTQ movement and gay pride. Um, Where are they learning this? Well, the U.S. government did it in embassies around the world. Um, and you wonder, you wonder, you wonder why our credibility as a nation is uh, so in question. Christians, it is time to get God back into the conversation. And one of the places where we have to do that is in relationship to education. So up next, family physician and author, education advocate, Dr. Leonard Sachs. What's the best school for your kid? That's up next here on Morning with Carmen. We're privileged to have joining us today, Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a practicing family physician. He's also the father of a teenage daughter, the author of four books for parents, including The Collapse of Parenting. Dr. Sachs, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So you and your family um, have been in the throes of what many of us have been in the throes of, and that is conversations about school and education and what's the best school for your child. So talk with us about um, not only your own family's decision-making, but what your research um, is leading you to understand about where we are in terms of education in America.
2: Well, over the last 20 years, I have visited over 460 schools, um, and I have found that many schools Many American schools teach what I can only call a lie, and the lie is that if you're really successful, you will be happy, that the path to happiness lies in professional success. Work hard, get into a good college, work hard at college, get a good job, get a good job, have a good life. That is pervasive, and it's actually not true. It's empirically false. Uh, People earning a million dollars a year are not any happier than people earning 50,000 a year Uh, And that's a a very robust empirical finding. We've got lots and lots of studies on that What determines happiness is not how much money you earn a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions What Mm. researchers find is that the biggest determinant of happiness is the quality of your personal relationships if you're in a stable happy marriage you're much more likely to be happy than if your marriage is falling apart. And that's true whether you earn $50,000 a year or a million dollars a year. And that's just true all across uh, demographics and urban, rural, affluent, low income. The quality of your relationships and whether you are virtuous, for lack of a better word, conscientious uh, is the word that the psychologists usually use. Are you honest? Are you self-controlled? That's what determines happiness long-term, not how amazing you are in terms of your academic achievement or your professional achievement. So the pervasive message that so many American, not all schools, but so many schools send out, which is that the path to happiness lies in being amazing, it's just not true.
0: So one of the things that I'm, of course, tempted to examine here is then how would we Um, you know, how in our culture would we go about describing one another? Because, you know, part of your credibility lies in the fact that you have all these letters after your name, right? You know, MD, PhD, (laughs) right? Um, And, you know, and so where you went to school and who you know and what you've done and what you've accomplished in the books that you've written. So I think part of the challenge that we face is that we have a culture constructed around um, all of this credentialing. And the credentialing is based on, you know, which institutions you have sheets of paper signed from that you have, you know, you didn't just go there, you stayed there long enough to get a sheet of paper. So talk with me about that, how we, you know, maybe how you're navigating that in your own family, you know, what's best for your child in terms of fulfilling their potential versus just being a person with a sheet of paper from a, 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 a recognizable place? Uh
2: So my own story, uh, my wife and I moved to Chester County, Pennsylvania, uh, gosh, 13 years ago uh, because we weren't unhappy with the schools. Uh, We thought we were infertile. We'd been married for 15 years with no child. And then we had our one and only. And uh, so uh, all of a sudden now we're looking for. Quote-unquote good schools and we weren't happy with the choices available in Maryland. So uh, I I sold my practice and we moved to Chester County, Pennsylvania and Enrolled my daughter in pre-k at a one of the quote-unquote best schools Uh, uh, K through 12 school pre K through 12 school Where many of the graduates go on to Harvard Yale Princeton Stanford? Uh, the quote-unquote the best school But after nine years at this school, uh, I became concerned and my wife became concerned and my daughter was concerned that the focus is relentless on being amazing and having outstanding academic performance and extracurriculars and activities and just being amazing all around. And it is exhausting and it is draining and it is competitive. Uh, And so we moved to a Christian school, which, you know, is also very uh, uh, teaches all the content areas obviously but where the focus is more on character are you a good person are you kind are you charitable rather than how amazing you are and my daughter's beginning her second year at this school and it's been such a change for the better less drama and she's just so much happier at this school uh, and you know so when I speak to parents and I do a lot of presentations for parents uh, some parents will say, well, you know, that's the that's the price of success. You know, I'm willing to trade a um, higher risk of anxiety and depression now if, if it'll improve my kid's chance of success long term. But that parent is mistaken. What predicts success long term and by success, I mean health, wealth and happiness at 32 years of age uh, is not how amazing your kid was in high school. What determines health, wealth, and happiness uh, twenty years down the road is honesty, character, conscientiousness. So it follows that our top priority should be to teach virtue and not to push our kids to be amazing so i'm trying to practice what i preach
0: we're talking with Dr. Leonard Sachs. You can find him at leonard Sachs, that's s a x dot com um, one of his books is The Collapse of Parenting. Today, we're discussing, you know, when the best school is not the best school in terms of what's best for your child. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is a new day. Everything's bursting with hope. Coming alive. This moment, moment. All right, picking up where we left off with Dr. Leonard Sachs on the topic of, you know, figuring out what's best for my kid? What's best for your kid in terms of educational choices? So, Dr. Sachs, maybe make us um, some recommendations. How would you go about finding a school that prioritizes character and conscientiousness over performance? Like, how would I evaluate that?
2: Well, very bluntly, I encourage parents to look first for a Christian school, a school that has an explicitly Christian focus uh, that believes that the first priority is to teach kids to be conscientious, honest, courteous, respectful. Uh, And I'm afraid that is no longer the case at many public schools. And it is no longer the case at many quote unquote leading private schools. Uh, At the leading private schools, the focus is increasingly relentless on being amazing and getting into the best colleges Uh, at many public schools. uh, The teaching of values and virtue is now handicapped uh, by moral relativism. Uh, So uh, I think if you possibly can, you want to find a Christian school uh, for your child. And if you have to move, then move. I mean, uh, my wife and I moved to, uh, to find a better school for our daughter. So I'm not asking parents to do anything that we haven't done ourselves
0: yeah we have a a saying at the christian classical school that some of our kids have attended and it's the saying that um that fcs ruined me and some of what i think we're looking for as christians is a school that will ruin our kids for the culture <laughs> like right i want my kid to be ruined in terms of um the cultural uh the things that the culture would seek to provoke them to what? Uh, value.
2: It it goes back to Paul's recommendation that you be in the world, but not of the world. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, be aware of some of the lies that American culture is pushing on kids. The lie that if you're amazing and you're professionally successful, you will be happy. That is pervasive and it's not true. The the key to happiness is virtue and character, not Mm -hmm. professional. Uh, amazingness. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with working hard and doing well, absolutely. But that can't be fundamental. And again, this is very concrete. And in the article I just published on this, I'm very concrete in my recommendations. Uh, say to your child, I'd rather you get a C on the test, honestly, than cheat and get an A don't take that for granted because cheating has become much more common in the United States than it was just 20 years ago. As kids are getting the message that doing well in school is the most important priority, more important than being honest. That's the really toxic message that many American schools now deliver. And there has indeed been a Great increase in the uh, proportion of cheating that's happening in the United States you got to b- be very explicit with your kid i'd rather you do poorly in school honestly than cheat and get an A even if you know a lot of the other kids are cheating what 's important is being honest, not getting not not cheating in order to get an A on the test
0: you know you're reminding me of something that I read some time ago um, in the New York Times, and it was about teaching children to lie. <laughs> and, I, you know, I do think that we live in a culture um, where there's so much confusion and the value of, uh, you know, the value that we place on honesty and integrity, the virtues, as you describe them, conscientiousness, empathy. I mean, you know, empathy is, seems to be something that is Desperately lacking in the culture today. Um, and so, maybe talk with us about how you have addressed those in your own home or how you see those being positively addressed in an educational environment. Like, how do we teach for character?
2: Well, you know, you mentioned the New York Times. In my book, The Collapse of Parenting, I, I mention a column uh, by regular columnist for the New York Times, Jennifer Finney Boylan who wrote an article on enlightened parenting, and she asserted that enlightened parenting means, and I'm quoting now, setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing, your child becomes a stranger to you, then so be it, end quote. That may seem enlightened to some, but it's not. It's a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves, their own right and wrong, and they live in the United States, and they have internet access, what they're going to discover is Cardi B, Bruno, Mars, mainstream pornography, uh, a very toxic culture. uh, And you're not doing your duty. Uh, In that same chapter of the collapse of parenting, I go back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse seven. uh, In the Hebrew, usually translated, teach them diligently to your children. But in my little uh, exegesis of Deuteronomy there, I show that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew verb there is not to teach, which would be lamed. The Hebrew verb there is shenan. Shenan means to chisel in stone. So better translation of Deuteronomy 6-7 would be Inscribe these laws on the hearts of your children. Inside, chisel these laws on the hearts of your children. That's what scripture is teaching us regarding best practice for parenting, which just happens to be what all these long-term longitudinal cohort studies are also teaching us about best practice for parenting. The scripture lines up very well with the research that parents must actively teach their kids uh, uh, right and wrong. And that means you want to schedule time to do fun things with your kid, not to drill them on math or science or soccer, but to just go and have fun with them, to celebrate life together, uh, to communicate to them that that's what counts. You know, I see so many parents picking up their kids in car line and whisking them off to computer coding class and then going to uh, travel team soccer and the unintended message those parents are sending is that the most important thing in life is to be amazing Uh, and they're literally eating in the car on the way from one activity to the next don't do that you're sending all the wrong messages cancel those activities make time to have a family meal at home again in my book the collapse of parenting I share research showing that the more meals at, at home you have in a week the more likely your child is to be happy uh, virtuous self controlled, the less likely okay, so, they are to be anxious and depressed
0: so i am I am then a successful parent because <laughs> <laughs> we eat at the table at a table set, everybody's sitting down, no electronic devices uh, for dinner every night every single night and uh, and on the weekends more more than one meal together at a table and so I I am an, I'm not just an advocate of this, like I'm a practitioner. And so I, I get what you're saying. I'm making an appeal now to those who are listening. Um, Make a step in this direction. If you're saying to yourself, we don't ever do that. We don't ever sit at a table together, look each other in the eye, no electronic devices, have a conversation over a meal, um, you know, with an intentionally set table, like this is what we're doing. And this is this is how we're going to uh, achieve community in this one part of the kingdom, right? So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to model practices that we then want our our children to adopt and carry into the future. And in order to do that, we have to do it with them. And so, Dr. Sachs, I really I appreciate appreciate this approach so much. The collapse of parenting is uh, just one of Dr. Sachs's. Um, excellent books, Girls on the Edge, Boys Adrift, Why Gender Matters. That one's already in the second edition, probably headed toward a third edition as fast as that conversation is changing in the culture. Um, Dr. Sachs, thank you so very much. want to send people to your website, leonardsachs.com. Appreciate you being with us today. Thanks again. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, yes, uh, thank you for texting in this morning. That number is 877-933-2484. Concern being raised that, you know, Christian education is expensive. Um, And aren't there good options still in public school? Can't we be a light and a witness there? How are we praying for Christian teachers in the public schools? Yes, 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 yes. We prayed yesterday. We talked about praying yesterday for teachers with Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer. We, 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 on a regular basis, feature conversations here with um, uh, CEIA, the Christian Educators mm-hmm, Association International, CEAI.org. Tons of great resources there. And, yeah, Christian education um, is expensive. You, you have to sacrifice. There's no question about that. We don't go to Disney World. We send our kids to Christian school. Like, that, there's you make trade-offs. There's no question about that. Um, we don't have Netflix. We send our kids to Christian school. We, I mean, we go down the list of things that we don't pay for, we don't participate in, we don't go do in order to um, send our kids to Christian school. And then you guys also know, you know, I got one in public school. Why is that? Well, he's got some very special needs. And frankly, the resources that we can bring to bear in public education on kids with special needs far surpasses what we can do in private and Christian education. That's, um, that's something we got to attend to as Christians as well. Um, and I would send you to key ministry for answers to those kinds of questions. All right. Um, we're going to talk with Dan DeWitt next. This is a, you know, I don't know. We're going to move from Christian education to the Christian education of all of us. We got the Weekend Worldview Reader with Dan DeWitt up next.
1: Where do you go to relax? Who calms you down when you're wound up tight? If I ask those questions of your teen, would they give your name as an answer? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When a teen struggles, they rarely seek out mom or dad's help. Many times they have good reasons not to. When they get home, they face a barrage of critical words and angry responses, or they feel more shame than hope. When your teen walks out the door each morning, is he more worn out? or more refreshed. You have the ability to be the calming agent in your teen's life. It doesn't mean you approve of all their behavior. It just means you're more ready to embrace them than you are to embarrass them. Look for ways to be a stabilizing force in your teen's life.
2: Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Dan DeWitt. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can easily find him at Theolatte.com. Hey, welcome back. And how's everybody in your house feeling?
1: Everybody so far so good. So my wife, um, we have a breakthrough COVID case. My wife tested positive, but nobody else has symptoms yet. And we're praying that stays, it stays that way. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Our Labor Day weekend plans have been um, scuttled because we had an exposure. <laughs> nobody's nobody's sick and nobody yeah. has anything wrong with them, but we we had an exposure. And so we, uh, we're just trying to be super careful. So yeah. Um, you're a good guy for joining us even in the midst of all of that and in the midst <laughs> of school starting back and all those things. So thank you so much. All right. So I am looking at this week's Weekend Worldview Reader at com, And I want to talk about the ditches of liberalism and fundamentalism. How do I avoid the ditches? And what does that mean?
1: Well, so I put on social media a a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, a a statement that ended up getting um, a lot of traction in terms of social media analytics. It was retweeted and liked almost a thousand times. And that doesn't happen often for me. So that was kind of like, oh, wow, people seem to resonate with that. And what I said is that both fundamentalism and liberalism are never satisfied. they will always want more if you live for them, prepare to be unhappy and what I'm talking about there, I've had some pushback from a few people who would say, "Well, fundamentalism's a good thing, and you know you're you've moved away from the historic um use of that term." And it's just really sad that you know it means something other than what it used to mean. And I would completely concede that point. I mean, the the term fundamentalism goes back to a series of articles that were published together in um, a book called The Fundamentals, or a series called The Fundamentals of the Faith. And so, a fundamentalist was just somebody who believes the fundamentals of the faith. Today, that's not how the term's used. So, what the way I'm using it is to say a liberal is someone who wants to take away from the Bible. A fundamentalist is someone who wants to add to the Bible. Those are the two ditches. And if you start giving into them, the fundamentalism fundamentalism I'm describing is always going to want to add more, and the liberalism I'm describing is always going to want to take away more. The way that you stay out of those ditches is to hold fast to what the Bible says. Um, Don't add to it. So say, I think John Stott said something like this, say what the Bible says, no more, no less for the same reasons that the Bible says it.
0: Okay, repeat that last part, because I think that's the—I think there's—I think that's critical.
1: Yeah, so say what the Bible says, no more, no less, for the same reasons that the Bible says it, which means you're going to have to understand the context and the spirit of what's being said, um, and make sure you're properly interpreting and applying Scripture.
0: So that's the right handling of the Word of God. I I think that— when I boil down the challenges that we face as Christians in the culture today, I mean, it ultimately boils down to that. We misunderstand, misuse, misapply, misinterpret uh, the Word of God. We we handle it poorly, and we handle it poorly on both sides of the um, narrow way that we're supposed to be walking. Yeah. And that's how we end up in the ditch on the left or on the right. Do Do I— Does that summarize it?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, this is not one of those things. It's not a game of gotcha. Like, if you just differ Mm -hmm. with me a little bit, then, oh, you must be in a ditch. Because, you know, there's a broad stream of orthodoxy that would give us a range of acceptable interpretations of Scripture. So a Presbyterian could differ with a Baptist on baptism, but we would say, you know, we're still in the same stream of orthodoxy. Um, The ditches are where you're going to add a lot to the Bible— and not care as much about how you can justify that position from the Bible, you just think, I'm going to add it. And the liberal would be someone who would deny like a, an essential teaching of Scripture, like the resurrection of Jesus. I, I grew up thinking a liberal was someone who used the NIV. <laughs> so I was in a church that was King James only. So if you use the NIV, you were a liberal. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually met a real liberal who claimed to be a Christian but didn't believe Jesus had risen from the dead. That's a liberal. And so I think we want to be charitable in how we use these terms, knowing that we could differ on some things, but there's primary doctrines that we have to hold to. And I, I always quote—a um, quote I always use with my students is—and uh, can be traced back to, I believe, a student from, of Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformer, and it's this, "...in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity."
0: Okay, I love that. So just so that um, everybody is aware of the different worlds from which, uh, within Christendom, the different worlds from which Dan and Carmen um, have arrived at this conversation, I was identified as a quote-unquote fundamentalist on my seminary campus because I carried an NIV, and I had an NIV study Bible. (laughs) That was the identifier of the fundies on the campus where I attended. And yeah. in other environments, the NIV is the indication of liberalism. So I think that that is a, a good um, a good way to have the conversation. Like, great, right? there's such a broad and wide spectrum. And depending where you're standing at any given point in time and who is standing to the right and the left with the dominant megaphone, um, you are labeled as something you clearly are not. I mean, I remember having the conversation. It's impossible for me to be a fundamentalist by any actual real definition of that term, um, you know, based on the fact of where we were having uh, that conversation in the context in which it was taking place. So I, I think that um, that is super helpful. want to just send everybody to it. It's a great, it's a short piece. It's really great. It's very concise. It's a great conversation starter today with others. Fundamentalism and liberalism, two ditches. To avoid, you can find it at Theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan DeWitt and I will be right back. Dan DeWitt serves at Cedarville University. He also posts regularly at Theolatte.com. He's an author, he's an artist, and a genuinely all around good guy. Um, You can find what we are talking about today at Theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Really easy resource not only to use yourself but pass along to others to, you know, provoke some really good conversations uh, about the headlines of the day and what's going on. So, Dan, let's talk about um, campus chaplains. What is a chaplain at Cedarville and what and who is the new head of chaplains at Harvard?
1: So I don't know, you know, it's funny you asked me that. Someone called recently and they said, who's your campus pastor? And we really don't Mm. have, we have a lot of different kind of positions on campus, like discipleship leader, that kind of thing, but we don't have the title of chaplain or pastor. But typically a chaplain would be someone um, who can service on a secular campus, a particular religious segment of the student population. And so unlike a military chaplain, you know, usually a chaplain at a college campus isn't expected to kind of service every religious tradition like a military chaplain would. Um, but nonetheless, I wrote an article this week um, because someone's been named to the chief chaplain at Harvard University, and it's caused a bit of a stir because he's an atheist. We have a chaplain here who doesn't believe God exists. And so people are trying to make sense of that. What does that mean How should we think about that? Is this just one more opportunity to be angry um, about um, Harvard University and those elite liberals? What should we think about it? Tim Keller came out with an article that I've not read yet, but Paul um, mentioned it on the break, and so I need to check it out. I know that Tim Keller and Greg Epstein, who's the new chief of chaplains, which is the kind of top chaplain position at Harvard, had a public dialogue a long time ago, And so they've had a relationship that I'm aware of. And so Tim Keller talks about just in a pluralistic society um, that there needs to be this kind of friendly dialogue going on. And Greg Epstein's really kind of embodied that um, in his manner and also in his books. So that's what the article's about. What do we think about an atheist being a chaplain of the most prestigious influential university in North America? What do you think about it, Carmen?
0: Well, I teed it up for conversation the other day when I first read about it. And since then, I have also listened to um, what Dr. Albert Moeller said about it during his briefing on Wednesday morning, September the 1st. So all of my thinking about it is now influenced by all that I have read and engaged on um, in the meantime. I think what stands out to me is this guy is not new and this issue is not new at Harvard. Um, the, The tact that I took in in talking about it the first time around was just to take a historical romp um, and mm-hmm. talk about Harvard's mission drift and how over the course of time, you know, it went from being a place that was actually established to educate clergy so that, you know, America's new new people, the new population of what became the United States of America, was, which was certainly not the United States of America at the time in the 1600s, um, that, that there would, they would be an educated clergy That was the point. And now for that institution to not only have employed for now a generation this individual um, who has been teaching on a regular basis. And, you know, I think that what we would all acknowledge is that one of the reasons Cedarville doesn't need a quote unquote chaplain is because everyone serving at Cedarville um, is a Christian. And so everyone is a chaplain. Like, right. We are patterning our lives after one another. We are shepherding one another. We're walking with one another. Um, and right. so it, at Harvard, they've got 40-some chaplains, and many of them are non-believers. many mm-hmm. of them. In fact, it's the chaplains who elected this individual to serve as their chief of chaplains. And so um, when, when you've arrived at this point, I, you know, I, I think that—I just think that it's a bellwether. Like, it's an opportunity to point to something and say, this has happened, um, and— there's a reason that the New York Times and other places are reporting on it, because even the New York Times recognizes, you know what, there's something to this and we should talk yeah. about it. So that's, um, that's what I would say. And if there's something to it and we should talk about it, then it's an opportunity for Christians to get into a conversation that the culture is having and for us to influence that conversation in a particular direction. For us to say, we think it matters um, we think the word chaplain matters. We think that a chaplain should have a set of beliefs that's worthy of imprinting on the next generation. And this is why I don't think this person's belief system stands up and why I don't think they should be shepherding the hearts and minds of the next generation of Americans' leaders. But the statistics related to the students at Harvard, they overwhelmingly don't believe. I mean, they're, it's a mm-hmm. non-believing community. And so Is it right that a non-believing community has a non-believing chaplain? And if so, what does chaplaincy mean? Like, what are we even talking about? And so I think that thinking about what we're thinking about and applying the mind of Christ to this particular uh, conversation is helpful. And you do that well um, in your post. So thank you.
1: Well, my pleasure. And, you know, I I love seeing what's going on at at Harvard. And I I used to, in in previous years, would lead a trip to to Boston every spring and bring students um, to spend time at MIT and at Harvard and Boston College and other schools. And what I loved to do while we were there is I would always have a PhD student who was a Christian give my students a tour of the campus, and Harvard was always my favorite. And the the PhD student who led us on a tour, his name was Tyler Flatt, And I eventually hired him after he graduated, um, and he now teaches literature at Boyce College. I was dean of Boyce at the time. But what I loved, and Carmen, I just wish you could see this scene, standing in Harvard Yard, here's Tyler, a Ph.D. student, getting his third degree in classics, um, uh, final degree from Harvard, telling us about the history of the school established to train ministers. And inevitably, there'd be all these people on campus, and for the most part, when you're at Harvard— the people you see on campus are not students. The students are busy in class and studying. The people you see on campus are tourists. And so Tyler would stand in Harvard Yard, and every year we did this, there'd be a large crowd that would gather because here's a free tour, and he would share the gospel as he stood Mm. there. And he would share the gospel from the history of the university. It was always a beautiful, a beautiful thing.
0: All right, that sounds awesome. Um, for those of you texting in, asking, are there campus ministries related to Ivy League schools like Harvard? Yes, indeed. Yeah. You should check out ChristianUnion.org. ChristianUnion.org, one of the great ministries that is uh, serving and then seeking to reach these particular campuses. ChristianUnion.org. Dan, as always, thank you so very much. Tons of great stuff this week in the weekend worldview reader, including. Church, COVID, and college students because, yep, they're back on campus. Dan, yeah. we'll catch up with you next time. Blessings and uh, and health and peace.
1: Thanks so much, Carmen. Take care.
0: You too. We'll be right back.
2: This is a kingdom. All
0: right. What's the word of the day? What's the word of the day? I mean, this is the day that the Lord has made. We're rejoicing. We are glad in it. What is the word of the day? Where in the word are you today? I had somebody ask me, you know, what's the word of the day? And I said, hmm, pretty much every day my word is Jesus. And, of course, they rolled their eyes, and they're like, you Jesus juke me every time. So what's the word of the day? Is the word of the day encouragement? Is it peace? Is it rest? Is it hope? Is it help? Is it grief? Is it long suffering, endurance, faithfulness, mercy? Maybe the word of the day is please. Maybe the word of day is blessed. What's the word of the day today? What's the word um, over you today? And in the same um, way that. You know, on the red carpet, sometimes they say, you know, they, they call out from the media, hey, who are you wearing? And they're talking about, you know, the designer of the gown or the, or the suit. Um, it's, not, it's not who are you wearing that designed the physical garment. It's the who are you wearing in terms of Christ? Who's your covering? Who's got you covered? Who's got your back? Same applies to the word of the day. The word of the day is the word made flesh. With God in the beginning, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. What's the word of the day? It's not a what, it's a who. Who is the word of the day. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The word of the day is Jesus. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.